0: You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 10th of November, 2023, on Monocle Radio. It's 2100 in Pyongyang, 1400 in Khartoum, midday here in London and 7am in New York. You're listening to Monocle Radio. The Briefing starts now. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. Coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London, I'm Vincent McAvini. Coming up on today's programme, as Israel agrees to humanitarian pauses, European nations remain divided on how to respond to the conflict. North Korea shutters overseas embassies. Is the move for stated financial reasons or part of a strategic realignment? Then we hear about how Sri Lanka's tourism industry is
1: building back. We have a new tagline, it's called Sri Lanka, you'll come back for more. There's a reason behind it. 33% of Sri Lankan travellers are repeaters. Plus, we preview
0: the Dubai air show taking place next week. All that, right here on The Briefing, with me, Vincent McAvinney. First today, though, for much of the past month, the world's attention has largely been on Israel and Gaza. But the war in Ukraine still very much sadly rumbles on. But not in a theatre you might expect. Videos have emerged of heavily armoured Ukrainian special, special forces allegedly hunting mercenaries employed by the Wagner Group in an unidentified area of Sudan. Meanwhile, Sudan is currently in the grip of fresh ethnic cleansing with thousands of people forced to flee the region west of Darfur. I'm joined now by Tara O'Connor, founder and executive director of Africa Risk Consulting, a pan-African consulting company. Tara, thank you for joining us. Firstly, this is quite a remarkable footage of purportedly Ukrainian special forces far from home, isn't it?
2: Yes, and I think while there is some, I think people are still waiting for the for the videos to be geolocated to Sudan, um, especially amongst the Sudanese experts in, in the UK, certainly um, I have confirmation from sources with very good links to Ukraine's military and intelligence community who claim indeed that the report that Ukraine is targeting Wagner troops in Sudan to be true. And how
0: significant a presence do the Wagner Group have in Sudan currently?
2: Well, I think um the you know it's very difficult to know what um to what extent what presence they have there but certainly you know sudan is a very key link to central african republic where you know that um where we know that the wagner group has traditionally had quite or has recently built up quite a considerable presence they also have a presence in neighboring sahelian countries like um mali um, but um, up to the beginning of the conflict in Sudan, we do know that um, the Wagner Group was providing support to the Rapid Support Forces, which is one of the rebel groups that's operating in Sudan. And prior to that, they were also involved in shipping out gold from gold mines in North Africa, in North northern Sudan, which, uh, which is actually believed to be supporting uh, the overall Russian war effort.
0: Do you think Kiev might be, in effect, actually happy that this video has emerged because it might spook members of the uh, Wagner group? And Has there been any reaction from the Sudanese government yet?
2: Well, certainly, it was a subject that was raised when Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky met and had an impromptu meeting at uh, at Shannon Airport in Ireland when he met the Sudanese, uh, the head of the sovereign, the ruling council, the official uh, ruler of Sudan, um, in. And where I think the um, general Bohan was not that um, pleased that um, that uh, uh, that Ukraine was actually operating uh, covertly in Sudan, because I don't think they had been made aware. Um, But certainly, I think this, uh, you know, if the video then proves to be true, it will certainly be one of those external pressures placed on Russia and Wagner troops. We know that the Wagner troops have Wagner group has been, um, you know, really drill down on as it has been effectively nationalised by the Russian state. Um, And there are several members of the senior echelons of Wagner that have actually, uh, you know, been brought to heel by the Kremlin, shall we say. Hmm. Uh, And so this will obviously add to their discomfort.
0: And more widely across the African continent, with their former mutinous leader, Evgeny Prigozhin, seemingly bumped off in that private jet Hmm. crash. Is the group still operating as widely as it was before?
2: Yes, it seems to be. Um, it seems to be very much under under the under you know the the official Russian auspices. I know that the um, the vice president, uh, uh, the vice uh, the deputy um, defense minister, Russia's deputy defense minister, was actually made a three-country trip at the very moment when the uh, Prigozhin was facing assassination to shore up um, the, uh, you know, to retain control of, uh, of Wagner in these areas. And they're still operating very much so in Central African Republic and in Mali. But with very, in Mali, with very little effect in actually holding off uh, the movement south of, uh, of rebel forces.
0: And just turning to the domestic situation in Sudan itself, why are we seeing this fresh ethnic cleansing attempt?
1: Well,
2: in Sudan, people continue to call the rapid um, support forces the janjaweed which was a spin off uh, group of raid and retreat basically uh, a group that was its main its main role under the old re- old regime in sudan was basically ethnic cleansing so it's really a return to that kind of uh, a violent attack against what are perceived as non-arab speaking peoples so it's it, you know the ethnic cleansing has increased but also rapid support forces are actually accused also of um, of of recruiting child soldiers and uh, and children as as basically sex slaves, which uh, which of course would see them held up in an international court, which in turn, ironically, is a motivator for the for the rapid support forces to continue their battle. Um, they are also, it has to be said, uh, the New York Times is reporting that the rapid support forces, which have now incidentally taken full control of Darfur, of all the Sudanese armed forces garrisons in Darfur, which is a province the size of France. Um, and with the apparent support of covert support of the UAE via Chad, via neighbouring Chad, so there are lots of external proxies that are stepping up their campaigns uh, in Sudan, you know, out of the gaze of the international community that is very, very distracted by both Ukraine and Gaza.
0: Tara O'Connor, thank you very much. Now here's Laura Kramer with the day's other news headlines.
3: Thanks, Vincent. Almost 50,000 people have been displaced by fighting in northern Myanmar after an alliance of ethnic armed groups launched an offensive against the military two weeks ago. Fighting has raged across the northern Shan state near the Chinese border, posing the biggest military challenge to the junta since it seized power in 2021. EU countries are considering a backup plan to push through aid to Ukraine in its fight against Russia. It's in case Hungary vetoes the 50 billion euro funding proposal that is currently on the table. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban wants quick allocation of at least part of the more than 30 billion dollars from the EU for his country. The bloc froze the funds last year due to fears of the nation's retreat from democracy. NBTS member Young Cook has held a surprise concert in New York City. The free show featured tracks from his first solo album, Golden. He's the second artist to perform on the new outdoor stage at Times Square after the American rapper singer Post Malone. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Vincent.
0: Thanks, Laura. To the Israel Hamas war now, and it seems that Israel has agreed to several hours per day of humanitarian pauses in the fighting. Yesterday saw representatives from over 50 nations, UN agencies and NGOs meeting in Paris to discuss humanitarian aid for Gaza. But unlike with the Ukraine war, there has been a divide in the response across Europe and Britain on how to respond to the conflict. I'm joined now from Barcelona by Julian barnes Dacey, Director of the Middle East and North Africa Programme at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Julian, thank you for joining us. Firstly, why have we seen such a divided response across the European Union? Hi, good morning. Yes, um,
4: Europe has been caught between a a desire to to show show strong uh, support for Israel following the, the horrific Hamas attacks, but... I guess, increasingly wary of the nature of that military response, uh, the sense that that Israel is holding the entire population of Gaza, 2 million people, 40% of whom are children, collectively um, responsible for that attack, and and the sense of of an increasingly kind of unproportionate response. And I think Europe is divided between those two, between those who prioritise solidarity and support for Israel, And those who are concerned about the nature of Israel's response and and what we've seen as a result of that is is a somewhat uncoherent uh, European response, um, criticised by all sides um, and and really a position that has left Europe fairly irrelevant to, to, to events as they've unfolded on the ground.
0: And there was some strong criticism of Ursula von der Leyen's comments at the onset of this war, wasn't there? Absolutely. She went to
4: to Israel um, and she made no mention whatsoever of the of the need for, for Israel to to abide by international humanitarian law um, in its response. And, and given the nature of that response and and the kind of increasing sense that, 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 that civilians have been targeted too heavily, that 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 uh comment by 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 Ursula did provoke quite strong pushback from across Europe. But you know, it has to be said that the the other than, than, I mean, President Macron came out yesterday calling for a ceasefire finally, but very few European leaders have really been willing to take a strong stand um, in calling for, for, for a ceasefire for the collective protection of civilians who are
0: suffering un, under what is now an intense Israeli onslaught. On that point, France was the only G7 nation to vote in favour of a ceasefire at the UN last month. It does have, I think, the biggest uh, Jewish population of any European country. Why is Macron taking a different tack on this?
4: Well, I think there's two, a few things. I mean, one is that it has a strong uh, Jewish population, but it also has a very strong uh, Muslim population that that's kind of descended from from Middle Eastern communities. So, the political pressure that that is playing out in in France cuts both ways. Um, I think that that obviously um, the, the 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 scenes of, of of devastation and the humanitarian needs on the ground are are, are pretty. Um, visible. And, and, and you know, it's not hard to make a case for, for the need for, for a ceasefire at this stage. But also France has very close relations with a lot of um, Middle Eastern states. Uh, aside the UK, it's really the French who are closest to the Gulf, uh, to, 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 to other states in the region. And, and obviously, uh, Europeans, the West at large, is coming under immense pressure from from Middle Eastern states, from the wider global south to, to actually say, no, Israel should be also held to account in terms of abiding by international law yes it has a right to self defense but that shouldn't be a, a, a blank check um and there's a need for a ceasefire and so that message has been heard quite loud and clearly in france which wanted to to host that that conference in paris yesterday which wanted some kind of global uh participation in paris i think also felt the need therefore to to reach out to that constituency and make the call for the ceasefire
0: and Germany's uh, and Europe's other big power Germany marks the 85th anniversary of the Kristallnacht uh, last night. How much uh, is the history uh, of uh, you know Jewish people in Germany, the Second World War, of course, framing the German response because they're increasing their supply of weapons to Israel?
4: I think it, it 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 it's a key lens through which Germany has approached its its relationship with Israel for a long time, and the the kind of protection of of, of Israel is written into the German constitution. Um, Germany uh, does not want to lose sight of its history and 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 the Holocaust, and has has made. Continued support for for Israel and, and, and kind of an utmost principle of it of its entire political spectrum, and you see the Green Party that that might have been opposed to, to some of these, um, some of the military tactics being used in 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 Israel in in Gaza today, such as in Ukraine, um, but here has, has has very much aligned with with Israel, has offered full support politically and
0: militarily now, uh, given that that historic uh, relationship with with, with Israel. And finally, here in the UK, this is becoming an increasingly divisive internal issue for the Labour Party, not just because of traditional pro-Palestinian support on the left, but also the large Muslim support uh, for Sir Keir Starmer's party. Uh, is this something that's kind of uniquely quite British, or is this something that's playing out on the left across Europe? No, it's,
4: it, it's playing out right across the west
0: and whether it's europe or the us you
4: have very strong bottom-up pressure on on governing parties uh to to reframe or recalibrate their position away from one which is seen as, as unquestioned unconditional support for israel uh towards something that, that that is perceived to be more balanced and i think there was a a strong element of initial support for israel following the horrific terror attacks on on october 7th by hamas but the longer that Israel's response has gone on, gone on, ten thousand civilians now, ten thousand now killed, forty percent of which are innocent children. Um, the 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 more that 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 pendulum has has turned away from that position, and the the bottom up pressure has has kind of mounted in terms of the need for a ceasefire, the need to, to to call for a truce, and I'd say that extends beyond uh, you know, Muslim communities beyond the kind of traditional pro-Palestinian, um, uh, support groups in, 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 le- left, left-leaning parties. I mean, there is a, I think quite strong public pressure, even in somewhere like the U S now, um, to, 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 to calibrate the response, given how devastating it's proving on the ground and the risks that, uh, that that will isolate the west further the risk that that co- could cause a broader regional conflict mm. um that there, there are you know immense issues here but obviously the civilian suffering is, is the one that's first and foremost provoking uh the, the, these tensions given the images and,
0: and and voices that we're hearing from on the ground julian barnes daisy thank you very much you're listening to the briefing on Monaco radio <laughs> You're back with The Briefing on Monocle Radio. As North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un bolsters ties with the growing Russia-China axis, the country is scaling back its global diplomatic footprint. They reportedly plan to close almost a quarter of their overseas missions, blaming the impact of sanctions on their economy. I'm joined in the studio now by John Everard, formerly the British ambassador to North Korea. John, thank you very much for coming into the studio How important are foreign embassies for a country like North Korea?
5: They, The importance varies depending on what North Korea is trying to achieve at any given time. They are always important as a source of foreign currency because a lot of the embassy staff are actually engaged in not what you might regard as diplomatic activities, but more illicit trade, uh, smuggling of various kinds, uh, labor contracts, that kind of thing. Uh, but that's become much more difficult for North Korea because of the sanctions. They can't actually uh, send laborers abroad in the numbers they used to and they're having trouble moving the money. Uh, They're more important at times when North Korea is trying to broaden its network and mend fences with the Western world. Less important, thinks North Korea right now, that they've cuddled up to Russia and China and probably feel they don't need such a large network after all.
0: And is that the reason you think they're closing so many right now? And what will be the impact? Uh, apart from obviously not being able to do that kind of illicit trade, what, what will be the impact for them with other
5: governments? OK, that's two questions. Uh, let's let's start with the first one. Do I think that's the reason? Uh, I don't know. I, I, there are two schools of thought on this. One is that this is simply the North Korean foreign ministry has run out of money, had its budget cut. The North Korean economy is in a horrible state and probably budgets across the, 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 the government are being cut, so they've had to close down a quarter of their embassies uh, just to make ends meet. Uh, the other school of thought is that this isn't actually about money, this is about political signalling. That especially following Kim Jong Un's great visit to to Russia, uh, where as you saw, lots of agreements signed, lots of shiny new toys put in front of him, uh, he started to feel that th- that North Korea actually needs a strong relationship with Russia, strong relationship with China. Possibly Syria, possibly a few other countries, but not really uh, with the countries where they're now closing embassies. Um, to the list of closures, they've just added Nepal. The word on the street is they're about to close Dhaka in Bangladesh also. And interestingly, the North Korean statement on this hints that they are about to open some embassies as well. Uh, again, the rumour going around is they're going to open up an embassy in Caracas, which fits with that pattern.
0: And some of the others that are closing reportedly are Uganda, Angola, Hong Kong, Madrid. It's a really diverse uh, geographic range. How substantial are their actual embassies? Because the one here in London is a detached house in Ealing.
5: It's two detached not through. It's quite <laughs> big. Um, it's got a staff of what a dozen or so, and you know, it, it actually does diplomatic work. You can you can have meetings with the North Korean embassy in London. How substantial are embassies elsewhere? The one in Landa probably wasn't that interested in bilateral relations with Angola. I mean, friends though they are, much more interested in what it could do in illegal trade, and I suspect that most of the staff were busy doing that. Uh, Embassies, I'll swear, uh, the one in Bangladesh, nobody ever quite worked out what that did all day. So it's perhaps not such a surprise that it's about to go. Uh, not uh, Likewise, uh, the one in Nepal.
0: And North Korea locked down incredibly hard in the pandemic years. What's the state of the network of other countries'
5: embassies in
0: Pyongyang? You obviously spent a long time in one.
5: There aren't many left. Uh, almost everybody closed down in the pandemic, life became simply impossible uh, all the Western embassies one after another closed, most in the first half of nineteen of t- 2020 the Russians and the Chinese have held on, uh, the Cubans have left uh, and I don't know, I think the Indians have just about held on there, I'm not entirely sure uh, but the Russian ambassador has been posting on his website that life through the pandemic, life now, has been really really tough and it's been very very difficult uh, for even him, so a close ally of North Korea, to do any serious business with that country.
0: And obviously, we saw the pictures of that trip uh, where Kim Jong-un went to Russia. He saw all that tech. Are we starting to see any sort of movement or benefits uh, for North Korea? Or is it still just sort of focusing on getting the weapons that Russia wants to the front in Ukraine?
5: There have been satellite images of shipments into North Korea, probably grain probably also some oil Uh, there's been a lot of talk of russian tech transfer to north korea help with the north korean missile uh, program and with the satellite program though nobody seems so far to have actually pointed to a smoking gun there this remains speculation Mm.
0: Um,
5: and when it comes uh, to
0: you know Setting up a new embassy, something that you mentioned there. Obviously, you've, you've been in many embassies around the world. I mean, what do you actually look for? What do you do? How do you how do you do you approach other countries and say we want an embassy? Where should we go? Can you? What's how does that all of that work? Is it quite substantial?
5: It's substantial, certainly. You you don't ask the other country where you want to go. I mean, if you've got diplomatic relations with someone, uh, you tell them that you're going to set up an embassy in their capital, and uh, their protocol department would usually give you a, a help hand. Uh, But essentially, it's down to the sending state to sort itself out, uh, to buy or rent the the property it's looking for, and to to, to send out the staff. Uh, The staff come out with certain privileges, you know, the the, the way is smoothed and so on. But it's still quite a big logistical operation. And of course, an embassy isn't just another block of offices. Uh, It has certain security concerns that have to be met. Uh, It has certain prestige concerns also. You don't want an embassy that looks shabby. You know, you want one that's going to impress uh, the the host country. So your options. are Aren't quite as wide as they might be for just a commercial operation. Mm.
0: And I saw that uh, the embassy in Pyongyang—you actually shared it with a number of other countries. Is that quite unusual? Yes. Y- yes, it is.
5: Said no, yes. it's not unusual. Uh, the, what happened was that uh, the the East German embassy, as was in Pyongyang, was absolutely enormous, and the United Germany just couldn't use all that space. So they sublet parts of it to us and part to the Swedes. And there's now—well, uh, there was a, a French representative there too. The how unusual is that not unusual at all i mean i have uh, been i collocated with the germans in the embassy in minsk i collocated with the italians in the second embassy in minsk uh, the most of the british embassies in west africa francophone west africa are collocated with the french you have the kind of british representative on french premises so no the, the system is well established
0: hmm. john everard thank you very much you're listening to the briefing on Monaco radio <laughs> To Dubai now, where next week their air show is taking place. For understandable reasons, it's been a tough few years for both airplane manufacturers and airlines. But with traveller volumes now largely back to pre-pandemic levels, are things looking up for the aviation industry? I'm joined now by Murdo Morrison, head of strategic content at Flight Global. Murdo, thank you for joining us. What's in store for those attending the show next week?
6: Well, I think the Dubai Air Show next week is going to be uh, a pretty important show. As you said, the industry has really uh, come back and come back a lot stronger than people were expecting post-pandemic. Uh, the uh, the 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 aircraft manufacturers are, if anything, struggling to keep up with demand. The biggest problem that they have at the moment is uh, is problems with their supply chain, which is really a sort of effect, a sort of legacy effect of the the, the post-pandemic. Uh, uh, you know, uh, inflation and and jo- skills shortage and so on. But there is enough demand. Travel demand has come back, and the Middle East airlines, you know, Emirates, Qatar Airways, um, Etihad, are really sort of um, you know coming back very very strongly, ordering aircraft and uh, and you know really sort of uh, looking to uh, looking to the future. One of the big uh, changes in the pandemic, uh, which obviously sped
0: up the pace of uh, innovation and and alteration in the way that airlines worked, was the sort of mass retiring, it seemed, of the sort of queen of the skies, the Boeing 747. What's been the sort of chosen aircraft for many airlines to replace that?
6: Yeah, well, the 747, of course, uh, did go and of course, the A380 as well, which is its great sort of super jumbo rival, uh, stopped production in, uh, you know, around uh, uh, two or three years ago. So, um, you know, the, the the super jumbos are no more. Uh, Airbus have got the A350 and Boeing have got their successor to the, the 777-300ER, which is their big, big seller of the kind of uh, past couple of decades, the 777X. Uh, that has been delayed. That was meant to be in service by now, but it's been delayed until uh, probably around 2025 and that's causing that's one of many problems that Boeing is facing at the moment. Um but yes these are really the really the 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 new wide bodies that will be the the new queens of the skies.
0: And there will be military jets on display too, a growth area sadly due to global tensions.
6: Yes, I mean the the Dubai Air Show is always uh, a very big show for uh, military manufacturers of course, uh, you know, US and uh uh, and 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 European defence manufacturers see that as a very very big market. And depending how you, how you look at the defence industry, is it uh, when it expands, is it a bad thing or a good thing? Um, countries would obviously argue that uh, having a strong uh, defence, uh, a strong military presence, is a, is a deterrent uh, and, and defends their their citizens. So yes, it is a it is a it is a big uh, defence show, and we could see some. Um, uh, we could see some uh, developments there. The the Gulf countries, of course, are huge spenders uh, when it comes to uh, defence, uh, with fighter aircraft and so on. Um, I think we've probably seen most of the major orders that we're going to see uh, in recent years. But you know, you never know with the with the Dubai show; it often springs surprises.
0: And finally, space flight also a part of this show.
6: Yes, yeah, spaceflight is is another uh, part of the Dubai Air Show, and this is another area that the the UAE has uh, has very very quickly become a major player in. It sees the space sector as a, a sort of accelerator for other technologies and and, and a way of helping it uh, diversify its economy away from dependence on oil. Uh, you know, they've already had an astronaut on the International Space Center. They've launched a mission to Mars. They're launching a mission to the asteroid belt. So from a standing start, a little over a decade ago, they have really uh, developed uh, a very uh, sophisticated indigenous space industry. And we'll be seeing more of that, more announcements, I suspect, at the show next week.
0: Murdo Morrison, thank you very much. Now, despite an economic crisis that began in 2019, including dollar deficits and commodity price hikes, Sri Lanka's tourism industry has made a remarkable return to one million visitors by September and an anticipated total of 1.5 million visitors for the end of the year. Sri Lanka's tourism minister Haran Fernando was in London this week for the world travel market and sat down with Monocle's Tom Webb to explain more about how he helped revive tourism in the country.
1: Just 15 months ago, we had 12-hour power cuts, no fuel for weeks. The government got around, there's a new president that was uh, appointed, IMF gave us a bailout and we've done all the structuring work properly and my first job was to make sure all the airlines kept coming back to Sri Lanka because they all left off. And uh, currently Emirates flies five times a day. Qatar Airways flies six times a day. Turkish Airlines daily flights. We have Swiss Air coming in, a lot Polish coming in. So, so many airlines that have started calling into Sri Lankan Airport. And our new terminal is being built. Uh, that's a priority project of the Sri Lankan government because we are handling the maximum at the moment. So, we, we are doing a pilot also getting visa-free for the regional travelers. Uh, we started with India, China, uh, and a few other countries just to make sure that just to show the model, and I'm, I'm hopeful by next year we'll be able to give it to the entire country because, I mean, $40 or $50 shouldn't be the reason for people to reject Sri Lanka or go through an ETA system but just walk into Sri Lanka just like Singapore and uh, make sure they experience the best hospitality in the world and value for money because for a dollar you get more in Sri Lanka at the moment and it'll be very cheap to have a very quality high-class experience and, and Sri Lanka, we have a new tagline it's called Sri Lanka, you come back for more. There's a reason behind it. 33% of Sri Lankan travelers are repeaters. And we want to make sure that they keep coming back because we're just not about the culture or the culinary or the history. We have new things we are launching. We, we're going to launch ourselves as a marine destination. We have 142 odd shipwrecks from the Second World War. We want the diving to be a specialty fishing because we have one of the best beaches and we are, we built three yacht marines and we've registered two skydiving schools, got 20 hot air balloons. So that's the new Sri Lanka that people need to come back for more and just find out. And I think our biggest strength is hospitality. It's just our friendliness, openness and how we like to treat and feast
0: people. Haran Fernando there, speaking to Monocle's Tom Webb. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Laura Kramer and our studio manager was Mariella Bevan. The Briefing is back on Monday at the same time. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Goodbye and thank you for listening.